Here's your opportunity to listen and learn from the most successful people driving growth and success in Palm Beach County and beyond. Welcome to the Business in Paradise Palm Beach podcast with Carrie Stamp, founder of Carrie Stamp and Company, Principled Wealth Advisors. Carrie and his guests share stories and insights from Palm Beach County's most successful executives, entrepreneurs, and community leaders. Learn how they made it to where they are today, what principles guide them, how they mentor others to achieve success, and more. This is Carrie Stamp, and you're listening to the Business in Paradise podcast. I've got a really special guest today. Peter Weiss is the founder of Peter Weiss Publishing. They're a boutique producer of memoir books, and they're based in Palm Beach County. Peter's here to discuss how to go beyond transferring your financial assets onto your heirs by creating an autobiography that will pass on your most precious assets, your family history and family values. Peter Weiss, welcome to the Business in Paradise podcast. Thank you, Carrie. It's a great pleasure to be here. So, Peter, you are here. We're sitting in Palm Beach County. It's absolutely beautiful, and uh, that's why I kind of think of it as paradise. Tell us a little bit about your history and how you personally got to live in Palm Beach County. Well, I'm very blessed, as you are, to live in this gorgeous part of the country. And uh, I'm here at the, uh, let's put it, the uh, persuasion power of a very special person in my life, that being my wife. Ever since we were married, uh, we, we were living in the Midwest. That's where I had my business at the time. Vacations would bring us here. Family owned a uh, condo, a resort condo, and uh, we would come whenever we had the opportunity, particularly when our children were young. And it was always a very dreadful experience to return back home, particularly in the winter months, as you, I've heard you talk about in the past, Carrie, as well. So we always promised ourselves if the opportunity ever arose, this is where we would choose to live. Finally, the time come when, came when my wife, my dear wife, Allah, had enough. And she said, we're moving. If the time has come, uh, circumstances in our lives and our, she's a, uh, a primary care physician. She had an opportunity in her career. I had likewise had an opportunity in my career to, to get away from uh, the community we were in and, and relocate. And she said, I'm going. I knew she meant business. And the reason I knew that she meant business is because she had done this once before. She was actually raised, born and raised in the Ukraine in the former Soviet Union. And when the opportunity then arose, she informed her husband at the time that she was coming to America. And if he uh, decided not to join her, she would go on her own. And that's exactly what she did. She brought her young son at the time and relocated to the same part of the country where my family was living. My family had undergone a similar immigrant experience many years earlier. And so we connected at that point. So when she said, listen, I want to move to Florida, and uh, I knew she met it, and I didn't say say a word in objection, and I started packing. And Peter, when before you came to Florida, where exactly were you living? You mentioned the Midwest, but where were you living in the Midwest? We lived in a bedroom community of Indianapolis called Carmel, Carmel, Indiana. And I happen to know Carmel because one of my favorite golf courses, and I play Almost every year there in the member guest at a place called Crooked Stick mm-hmm. is in uh, Carmel, Indiana. And it's really, really kind of a special little uh, community. Our home was about uh, a third of a mile away from Crooked Stick. I drove by it every day. Nice. And Peter, you mentioned that you had a prior career. Tell us a little bit about what you were doing when you were living in Indiana. 
Sure, I'd be glad to, Carrie. Actually, what I'm doing these days with the publishing business uh, is my third career. After, shortly after college, actually, I started before college working in a, our family business, a business that was founded by my father. My father came to this country in the early 1950s, absolutely nothing in his pockets. It was the true immigrant American success story. He founded a uh, chain of retail stores in, um, in central Indiana, where I worked as a, as a teenager. And then once I was out of college, uh, I became a partner in the business, and I worked in that business for, for 30 years. We uh, owned and operated a chain of food stores in uh, central Indiana. There came a point in my time when I decided it was the right time to get to move on from that career, and I sold my interest to another member of our family. At that point, I decided to devote my professional career uh, in support of work that I had been doing as a volunteer up until that point, in support of something that my family very much believed in, and that is the cause of secular parochial education. I went to work as a fundraiser, as a development director. Uh, I headed up an endowment fund, and I set up a uh, philanthropic foundation uh, where I served as the chair for many years uh, in order to raise money and to allocate money in behalf of philanthropic causes that supported education. It was during that phase of my life that I met two very influential people in my life, one of them being my wife. I told you a little bit about her. And another one being a gentleman who was the lay leader of that organization. I was the professional, and he was the uh, chairman of the uh, volunteer board of directors who greatly influenced my career and my life uh, in, and got me really involved in what I'm doing these days. Peter, you moved down here to South Florida. And how long ago? That was about 15 years ago? 13 years 13 ago. 13 years yeah. ago. Mm -hmm. You moved to South Florida. So, Peter, you moved down to South Florida and you decide that you're going to start a publishing business that produces memoirs for people that want to have their story told. How did you arrive at that as a business idea? Well, that segues very nicely into what I was just telling you about the gentleman who I identified as my primary mentor in this field. Now, you have to understand, uh, I was in my early 50s at this stage of my life, and it's, that's a little bit old to be relying upon a mentor. But nevertheless, I was starting a new phase, and I found that this relationship that I had developed with this gentleman was precisely what I needed uh, to get me started and get me rolling. Let me explain. First of all, uh, the, the publishing entity was founded while I was still in Indiana. But one of the reasons that we came to Florida was in order for me to more effectively pursue that career. Let me explain to you how it happened. As I mentioned, I was serving as the professional with a philanthropic not-for-profit organization. The chairman was a, a very fascinating individual who was a Holocaust survivor from Poland. He had been extremely successful. He, like my family, arrived to the United States as an immigrant penniless and managed through his own tenacity and his own very strong work ethic to, uh, to build a, a tremendously successful career in the nursing home business, in the banking business, in the retail business, became a, a, a national level, nationally recognized philanthropist. He also became very involved in politics. As our relationship grew, he recognized that I had certain skills. I had been a writer ever since college, before actually. I'd worked as a journalist, I'd, I'd written articles, I'd written a few books in, in different technical areas in, the, in, the, uh, in my past. And he 
came to me and said, listen, Peter, I need for you to help me. English is not my first language, but I need to write articles. I need to make speeches. I need to appear before the public, and I need to present myself with proper English. Can, can you serve as my ghostwriter? And, and I said, all right, sure. I figured it was part of my duties. So we would meet. He would tell me he had a speech coming up. He would tell me what his thoughts were. I would then take those and fashion them into a present, presentable speech or an article or a short story or some, whatever, whatever type of literary need that he had, I was there to, to fulfill it. And I did it as part, more or less as part of my, my duties, my prescribed duties. Throughout this period, during those years, he would invariably, by the way, his name was Haston. Mr. Haston would invariably come up to me and say, Peter, I really would like for you to write my life story. I have led such a fascinating life. Uh, I escaped from the Nazis. I escaped from the Russians. I, I, uh, I, I, I have all of these extraordinary adventures in my life. And everybody I tell them to tells me I should write a book. But I don't have the ability to write a book. And you do. You should do it. I said, well, you know, I'm kind of busy right now. But if I ever have the opportunity uh, and the free time to do it, I, uh, we can talk about that. Well, the opportunity arose. I moved on from my position at the foundation, and I found myself with an adequate amount of time to devote to a project like that. So we agreed upon a price for my services, and I went to work as Mr. Haston's ghostwriter. We worked on this project. This was the year 2001, and we worked on the project almost on a daily basis. And the end result that got published in early 2002 met with an extraordinary success for my first time at bat. It was published by a commercial publishing house. It was distributed around the world. It was endorsed by everybody from former President George H.W. Bush to Prime Minister of Israel at the time. We, we enjoyed terrific sales. We went into a second printing, and it kind of established me as a reputation as a, as a ghostwriter. And uh, I enjoyed the, the experience so thoroughly. And the results were so gratifying and so positive that I decided that this is what I would like to continue to be doing. Now, that's how did that lead me to Florida? Might be the next question if I'm if I'm not preempting you by saying that. Sure. How did that lead you to Florida, Peter? <laughs> I determined pretty quickly when I after I started doing this for for a few more people that the the profile of the typical client that I work with is a rather uniform one. And that profile is an individual, self-made, somebody that has achieved success and is at a point in their lives where they have more or less satisfied their material needs. They've taken, taken care of the welfare of their families, and they want to have something that will endure, something that will outlive them, basically some type of legacy, uh, a literary legacy. And what didn't take too long to figure out that the highest density of that particular demographic is in South Florida. That wouldn't surprise me. There's, yeah. there's so many business people that have retired to South Florida that probably would like to have their story told. And that's part of the reason why we do this podcast is so that uh, business owners that have established uh, wonderful businesses, primarily here in Paradise, can tell a little bit about what their background is and what their story. If you weren't a celebrity, if you were just kind of a business guy that uh, built something, maybe you had some charitable causes and inclinations, 
why would anybody be interested in reading what uh, you, you wanted to write or have you write about their life story? Well, that's an excellent question, Carrie, and it's one that I encounter frequently. I do public speaking on this subject. Uh, I talk to men's groups, rotary groups, uh, book clubs, uh, church and synagogue groups on the subject of why you should record your life story, whether you're a business person or not. It's, it's, the benefits are so enormous that uh, uh, it's something that should be considered by everyone. But the question I encounter is that one. That I get, well, you know, I'm not a famous person. I'm not a celebrity. Who's going who's to be interested in reading my book? And the way I respond to that is, is by asking them a question. Jewish people often respond to a question with another question. And so this is what the question that I pose. And the, the question is this. If I were to somehow magically produce a book written, let's say, 100 years ago by your own grandmother, one of your own grandmothers, in her own words, describing her life, would you be interested in reading that book? Would, would that be something that would, uh, would interest you? And the answer, of course, invariably is yes, of course. So the response is for the same reason that you would be interested in finding about, out about her details of her life or his life, your own children, your own grandchildren, your own heirs will have a tremendous interest in reading about your life in your own words. And that's what makes it difference. And that's what makes it special. The difference, however, is that back in grandma's day, we didn't have the technologies that enable that to happen so easily as we do today. Today, just as anyone can do a radio broadcast like a podcast, just as uh, anyone can record a song and get it distributed all around the world, the popularization of this, uh, of this particular medium through technology has, has revolutionized the entire thing and made it possible for just about anyone that has a desire to do so to produce a book of their life story. So that's, that's what is so enabling. And that's what's so exciting uh, about the, the type of work that I've been doing these past 20 years. And so, Peter, you've created this as a business where it's actually something that somebody comes to you and says, hey, Peter, I'm going to tell you a lot about me. You're going to listen for hours on end. Then you're going to write this up for me. Walk me through how this as a business actually makes sense. And is it simply a case where you're doing engagements uh, one at a time? Do you have multiple engagements going at any one given time that you're, you're writing different memoirs for different people? Does this work as a business? It does, Carrie, but it's not nearly as interesting a business as the ones that I write about. My, the, the really interesting businesses are the ones that my clients have built and operated. Mine's a very straightforward, work-for-hire professional service, just like your services as a financial advisor, just like a lawyer, a CPA, I, I bill hourly. The way the, the way it works is when, a when I'm introduced to a client, I will discover, first of all, we'll have a preliminary meeting, get acquainted, and I will discover whether how much data that client already has prepared. Oftentimes, they will have already written a good deal. I mean, it's not literary quality, but it is something on paper. Or they have other documents available, et cetera. So I'll take a look at what they have. Then after having a discussion with them about their objectives, who they wish to reach, what type of distribution they're looking for, how many people I might have to interview in order to, uh, to, to do my research, et cetera, I'll put all that together. And based on my experience, I'll come up with a pretty close estimate of the time it will take me to produce step one, which is a manuscript, a ready-to-publish written manuscript. 
And I will present that as a not to exceed figure. If the client accepts it, they will be able to budget whether or not they wish to accept that. And if they do, they know that the cost of the manuscript will not exceed that. I bill on my actual time. I keep track of my time just as a professional service, and I bill monthly for that. You asked about how many projects. I typically don't do more than two projects at a time. Uh, so I try to stagger things and schedule them. So that allows me uh, the, the inadequate amount of time to do that. And I bill monthly. And if it turns out that I misjudged and I didn't estimate properly, the client still knows that they are not going to pay more than the not to exceed figure that I quote them in the proposal that I present at the outset. So that's typically the business model. It's it's pretty pretty straightforward. Of course, there are services that I offer beyond that. And that is, I actually physically can do a physical design of the book, design the book's cover, the page layout, et cetera. I have the fortune, I have those skills myself, and I can uh, put those to work as well. Then what I learned early on, and see, initially, Carrie, I worked with my clients simply to produce a manuscript. And then I would work as a literary agent. I would pitch that manuscript to commercial publishing houses. And occasionally, and not occasionally, always we would find a, a publishing house. Often it would be a vanity publishing house where you pay them at, for, for the service of actually producing and distributing the book. But after doing that a few times, I realized that what we're paying for these days can really, I could really do it myself. It wasn't that hard. It wasn't that complicated. So I decided to set up my own publishing establishment. And I, I do that. I'm able to physically produce the books, whether it's a book in print, soft cover, or a hard cover, whether it's an ebook, whether it's an audio book, or a combination of those. I, I have the facilities now, thanks to modern technology, uh, to be able to do all of that myself and on behalf of the client. And that's typically the way that these days that we work. So so uh, what what types of technologies are you using? Are you take, taking the uh, documents in digital form and sending them off to an outside publisher and producing that book? Do you do you have a uh, printer set up in your garage? How are you doing this, Peter? <laughs> well, uh, there's various various technical components. Uh, first of all, this uh, the interview process, like we're doing right now. You're interviewing me. I work very similarly with my clients, and what I do is record them on an audio file send them to a transcription service. And within a matter of hours, I have that, all of that documented in a searchable text format. I then conduct online research to give context to a person's life story. It's not simply just what happened to me from day one to day two. It's, it's what the whole history that's, that's going on in the meanwhile, because that gives a more enriching experience and a more fulfilling experience to the reader to understand the context. That all comes into play. Now, once I have all of the narrative put together, all the words, the manuscript put together, then it comes time to actually design what the pages are going to look like, how big are they going to be, what type of typeface is going to be used, are there going to be photographs, are they going to be in color, and black and white, is it going to be a soft cover, hard cover, will there be a wraparound dust jacket, all of these physical physical components come into play. And I work with the client putting all of that together. At the end of the day, we have two PDF files. One is the interior of the book and the other is the exterior book. And then we go to one of a number. Well, I left out a step, but there's proofreading and copy editing that go in there, but that's a bit technical. I don't think uh, your listeners are going to be all that interested, but the next major step 
is that we find a production and distribution facility. And these are abundant on the line. I've worked with over a dozen of them and they go, some get better sometimes and some others get better other times. These are what are called POD providers, print on demand. And essentially what they do is they take whatever you send them and they turn it into a physical book and they distribute it all over the world. You put a, uh, a UPC barcode on there and that en enables it to be a commercial product that is available for sale at retail books, books, bricks and mortar bookstores, available for sale at any online facility, amazon.com, books a million, Barnes and Noble, et cetera. And they handle that entire process for you. So I work with the client uh, through that process. And at the end of the day, they will have a book that's accessible and available to anyone anywhere in the country. And it's a it will be a commercial book that will be professionally produced and by it will have a literary value as well. See, one of the, I guess you might call them downsides of this, let's call it a populist technology. And I'm sure if you've listened to a few of them, you understand that there are a lot of people out there producing podcasts that aren't of the greatest quality, not like this one. This one is fantastic, but there are others out there that are not so fantastic. And by employing these enabling technologies, that opens the doors for just about anyone. So there are a lot of the same is same is true for books. There's people that produce books, simply they start typing and they send it off to one of these services and pretty soon they've got a book in their hand, but it's a book that nobody will really want to read. So that's where I come in. I try to bring some literary, some of my literary skills into play and produce a book that, that has literary value and merit. And in the process, producing a legacy for my client. In the example you gave earlier, where you asked the question of, would you want to uh, read a book written by your grandmother, you know, a hundred or so years ago? Uh, in my head, I'm thinking, okay, this is a book that's primarily for the family members to record a family history. Maybe if I was a uh, successful business person and I'd met the criteria that you described where I had all the material wealth that I wanted, and now it was kind of a self-actualization phase and I wanted to record my story. I probably would want this book distributed maybe to my friends, uh, certainly to my family. And then if there were people in my industry that I thought I could have an impact on or that they could get some ideas or mentorship through the book that I was writing, that that might be the, the distribution methodology. So how many people do you think actually read the personal memoir books? And when you're producing them, how many copies are you actually making in the first run? Well, that's just it. With the technologies that I mentioned, there is no minimum. That used to be the case. Back in the day, you had to have a minimum to make it economically feasible. You had to do a minimum press run in order to, to make it economically possible. I would work in those days, I would work with what were called short run printers and a short run printer would produce maybe 300, 350 books at a run to make it feasible. Today, given our current technology, it is possible to produce a book of equal quality by only producing a single copy at the same cost as if you wanted uh, two dozen copies. Uh, so the quantity is no longer an issue. These print on demand facilities, there is actually zero out of pocket produce, physically produce a book. So that is no longer an issue. The number of books that you ultimately wind up selling is, is not part of the value equation any longer. So if you only have produce a book and distribute it to 10 members of your family, that might be enough. 
you know, and and you're not your your cost would uh, would remain constant. There would not be any any downside to do to having such a small distribution. And so, speaking of distributing to the family, because you touched on something that I think is incredibly important, and that's the concept of passing down the family story, the family legacy, and a lot of the family values, which is something as a financial advisor we do a lot of coaching around for very successful families is that you don't just want to uh, prepare the money for your children. We tell our clients that they want to prepare their children for the money. And that comes from knowing the family history, knowing the family values and understanding how that impacts their legacy. So by writing these books, I can completely understand how that would have a kind of an anchoring effect to the family values and the family history. Peter, can you think of some areas or some examples where uh, this has had an impact in a family that you've written a book for? Well, to be honest with you, Carrie, you've touched at the very core of what I do. And I can't think of an example where it has not touched the family members in, in any of the books I've written, the nearly two dozen books that I've written so far. I really cannot think of an example where that, that phenomenon has not taken place. And what I'm talking about is the passing on of values, family values over valuables, over family valuables. As a financial advisor, you're called upon to provide guidance for your clients to how to most intelligently pass on their, their precious assets from one generation to the next. This is the job you do and the job that you do very well. There is another dimension, as you know, and you've alluded to it, and that is the one I just mentioned, and that is placing values over valuables. What, is, what does that mean? Well, it means that there is more involved simply than the transferring of financial assets. There are other assets, very precious, cherished assets, and you mentioned them. Family history, family values. A autobiography, a memoir book, is not merely a glorified resume of a person's life. It is not merely a litany of their accomplishments. It is much more than that. It is, in fact, a, a literary legacy of what that person, who that person was, who that person is and who that person was. And I use the past tense because at, at this stage of the game, quite a few of my clients are deceased. And I'm still in touch, however, with family members. And the message that I hear from them loud and clear, over and over and over again, is we are so glad that dad decided to write this memoir. Because long after the, the financial assets that he left us, those have, have all been absorbed, shall we say, and dispersed throughout the family. Long after that's forgotten, this book will still be here. And his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren and his heirs will still know 100 years from now who he was, and he was an extraordinary person. They should know, and this book enables them to do it. And we cherish that asset uh, more greatly than any of the any of the other assets, the, 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 the trust accounts, the houses, the, the yacht, whatever it is that he left to us. The most cherished asset that, that the grandpa left us is this book, his story of his life that we've enjoyed reading. That, to me, is the most powerful endorsement gives me the greatest satisfaction as the producer of those books than anything else that I do. You know, Peter, I love having a book in my hand or sitting out on my patio and, and uh, spending time reading a book. 
But aren't there other ways that people can also record uh, their life story and, and do some of those make sense for other people? Sure. And this is, as I mentioned earlier, this is what I talk about during my public. Uh, I, I used to do public speaking, let's say BC before COVID, and I hope to do it again AC after COVID. But what I tell my audiences is that, yes, it's very easy these days, much easier these days to produce a book. And I will help you do that. But you don't have to hire me to do it. You should do it anyway. And the reasons for doing it, the reasons, the reasons for doing it are really very simple. There are three very solid reasons that you should consider doing this. Number one, you should do it for the record because nobody should tell your story except you. People, the, the, the clients that I've worked with, for the most part, very successful individuals, they've had their share of controversy in their lives. This is an opportunity, not so much of retribution or revenge or anything like that, but to set the record straight, particularly those that have been in public limelight. This is their story told in their own words, and that's the way it's presented. Uh, that's number one reason. Number two is, as I mentioned, for the benefit of the family, for the heirs, to know who, who you were after you're gone, to create this literary legacy that I mentioned. But the third and often overlooked reason that they should do so has nothing to do with uh, setting the record straight, has nothing to do with benefiting your family. It has to do with benefiting yourself. Study after study after study by psychologists and for everybody in the, in the field, document the fact, and I can document it from firsthand personal experience, the benefits, the many, many benefits towards a person's mental health in, in writing their memoirs. The fact that a person is required to come in direct face-to-face -face contact with many of the ghosts of their own past. The fact that they, in order to be able to tell their story, they have to organize their life. They have to present it in a presentable way. And that process is a healing process. It is a, is it a, it is a therapeutic process. It is a cathartic process. And that catharsis is very, very beneficial for a person's self. The, the, the self-esteem and the satisfaction that a person enjoys, even if they write their story and nobody ever reads it, it just sits there, it's still worth doing. It's still worth the benefit. And this is what I, I, I tell my audiences. You don't have to do it in a book format, but you need to do it somehow. Now, there are other ways. You can sit down with a, with a cell phone and put it on video and just talk into it from time to time and put those videos away. One of the things people are doing these days is they'll set up a Zoom call with the family. All the family will get on onto the Zoom call and grandpa will tell his life story to all of the younger generations and they will ask him questions and that will be recorded, easily recorded. And that will be preserved, costs nothing. Okay. But it's still something that would be cherished and so precious years from now that it's definitely worth considering. If you just sit down and write it, talk into a tape recorder, whatever it is, some way, some fashion record the, the major moments of your life. It'll be something that you will be thankful for. And those in your family will be thankful for forever. Well, Peter, that's you make a great case. So those of you that want to consider having a life story or a memoir written for yourself, you can go to Peter's website, which is Peter Weiss, and that's Weiss, W-E-I-S-Z, publishing.com. And he's also got a list of FAQs on the website that will explain to you, you know, what you need to be thinking about, how long it will take, 
what you should be budgeting, what kind of things uh, uh, that you should be preparing. Peter's website is peterweisspublishing.com. And Peter, before you go, I know that there was a excerpt from one of the memoirs that you've written that you wanted to share with our listeners today. And so this is a sample of Peter's work that he's going to be reading. And Peter, I'll let you take that. Great. Thank you, Carrie. This is a brief introduction to a book I wrote. Let me see. It's about 12 years ago with a gentleman who is subsequently deceased. He uh, wanted to express the reasons in the introduction for his writing this book. And I think uh, his thoughts and the, the way that I documented him, I think is particularly appropriate and eloquent the way he said them. So I'd like to share them with you. A little bit of background. This gentleman was a very successful politician in the Midwest. He was also the uh, leader of an industry. He was uh, went head-to-head against Jimmy Hoffa in the trucking industry. Jimmy Hoffa was the leader of the Teamsters Union, and uh, this gentleman was his nemesis. He was his arch rival. He was the head of the trucking industry throughout the United States. Very prestigious position. The name of his book is High Octane, and it's an extraordinary book. Whether you Whether you knew the gentleman or not, his name was Jim McCormick. This is what he had to say in the introduction. Comparing the course of a person's life to a wandering highway with its ups and downs and its twists and turns is probably the most overused metaphor in all of literature. Despite that, and fully aware that we're all bound for the same eventual and unavoidable destination, I still can't help looking at my own life as an amazing and an adventure-filled journey. Perhaps the reason I find this metaphor so attractive is that much of my life has been spent in motion both literally and figuratively. From my youngest days, amidst the cornrows of our Southwest Indiana farm, I've I've held deep-rooted fascination with high-powered machines of locomotion. The one characteristic that all such vehicles share, be they tractors, autos, 18-wheelers, boats, airplanes, motor coaches, or motorcycles, is their dependence on fuel to power and to propel them on their way. Similarly, my life's journey has been fueled by my faith and by my family values of hard work, self-discipline, and vision that I absorbed back on the farm. That's a powerful potion that has kept me going strong for four score plus years. That's 80 years. In fact, it has been God's grace that has enabled me to reach this 80-year milestone and that has served as the inexhaustible, high-octane power source that has faithfully fueled my life's journey. Whenever a person sits down and tries to record the highlights of a lifetime, a lot of questions start to pop up. Questions like, will everyone think I'm an egomaniac for writing my autobiography? And and who is going to actually read this book? And what if I leave somebody out? Or what if I get somebody upset? Well, I think the easiest way to explain my purpose in writing this book is to list those things that I intend for this book not to be. First of all, I am not seeking to trumpet a self-congratulatory litany of my life's accomplishments. I intend to stay away as much as possible from the perpendicular pronoun, I, and focus instead upon the many faces and forces that have helped to shape my journey. This desire does not spring from false humility. Rather, I find these, those books that follow the format of, and then I did this, and then I did that, unbearably boring. And I truly want this book to be a pleasant, meaningful, and enjoyable ride for the reader. I am also not trying to produce a bestseller that might get turned into a major motion picture, although episodes in my life could rightly be viewed as thrilling 
and action-packed, keeping you on the edge of your seat is not high on my agenda. This book is definitely not motivated by any desire for revenge or an I told you so attitude. That type of thing would go contrary to the values to which I alluded to earlier. All in all, I've been very fortunate in terms of my relationships. I have friends today with whom I first became acquainted back in grade school, and I'm on good terms with all my former business associates and family members. The people closest to me have urged me for years to document what they always refer to as such an interesting life. Providing a response to all this urging, although definitely a factor, is not the primary mission of this book either. I believe it to be important to view one's life in a context outside of one's own personal experience. The journey is not the destination. For each of us to feel fulfilled, we must be convinced that our life's odyssey has a valid meaning. I've always tried to stick to some solid advice often offered by my father. Quote, try to go through this old world and leave it in a bit better shape than when you found it. Now, don't get me wrong. I didn't write this book to reveal the meaning of life or to espouse any personal ideologies. I'll leave that job to the philosophers and the pundits. Likewise, this book should not be regarded as a roadmap. If somebody reads this and decides to take a page or two of guidance from my experience as well, that's good and fine with me. But if you are expecting a point-by-point prescription for how to achieve success in business or in life, I'm afraid you've picked up the wrong book. The self-help section of any bookstore is loaded with volumes that promise that sort of thing. Nothing would please me more than if some young people, after having read this book, and finding themselves at a crossroads in life should use what they've learned from my life's lessons to help them in making decisions about which road to follow, to leave the world a bit better than they found it. When faced with choosing from 80 years of life's episodes and experiences, determinations need to be made about which stories to cover in this book and which ones to omit. In contemplating those decisions, I've tried to keep that young person at the crossroads in my thoughts. I've asked myself, Will this story help to propel him or her down the right road? Or is it not really all that relevant? It is my wish that adhering to this guideline has served to imbue my narrative with something of a higher purpose. I'm hopeful that my personal testimony will help the next generation get a sense of who they are and where they fit into the larger picture. Looking back towards the heritage of my pioneering ancestors, while at the same time looking ahead, into the faces of my children and my grandchildren, I'm able to view my own life as part of a continuum through the centuries. I hope to pass this feeling of continuity and this transmission of tradition along to the reader, and in particular, to my family and my heirs. Finally, a bit of a disclaimer. In the preparation of this book, I have spent considerable time and energy in making sure that I have my facts straight. But Despite these best efforts and given human fallibility, it is conceivable that errors may have crept into this, my personal history. In terms of factual content, for the most part, this is the way that I remember how events happened, and I may have recalled some details incorrectly. If you spot an error of any sort in the text of this book, please understand that it was not included intentionally. In preparing this book, I have often yearned to be able to read personal recollections penned by my own long-ago relatives. A first-hand account of my great-grandfather John McCormick's life, for example, written as he served in the Grand Army of the Republic during the Civil War. Wouldn't that be of priceless value? Unfortunately, 
no such diary or memoir exists. I suppose that it is the deficient, that deficiency that I am seeking to remedy by writing these words. In case some future McCormick in the year 2150 has an urge to learn about me back here in the 20th and 21st centuries, and assuming that such things as books still exist, he or she will be able to read about me in my own words. Words written while I still walk the earth, not after I, I was buried in it. Which brings me to the most important aspect of why I decided to write this book. It's simply a sense of gratitude and obligation to the good Lord who has granted me a soundness of mind and body so that even after I hit 80, I'm still firing on all cylinders. And as long as I keep running on that high octane fuel, I don't intend to slow down one bit. So for all these reasons, I invite you to pull yourself up into the cab, sit next to me for a spell. As the miles and the memories flash by, I'll try to keep you interested and entertained as I share some true stories about the roadblocks, the detours, the summits, the valleys of my long and occasionally profitable journey. Sit back and buckle up. I promise you the ride of a lifetime. Wow, Peter, that's great. That was High Octane by Jim McCormick and Peter Weiss. And I can see why Mr. McCormick must have done very well in life. He uh, obviously had an amazing story and sounded like he was a great salesperson. <laughs> and I'm sure not all those words were his, but it was a great, great excerpt and introduction. Huh. You've been listening to the Business in Paradise podcast. Our guest here is Peter Weiss, and he's got one more comment that he wants to throw back to our listeners. Well, that is simply that uh, you're absolutely right about Jim McCormick. He liked to call me his collaborative writer rather than his ghost writer, which I think is a, uh, a more impressive term. So you're absolutely right. And the comment I wanted to make is that Jim passed away two years ago. These very words that I just read to your readers were recited at his funeral as his eulogy. So that's the, what we're talking about when we're talking about a legacy. Thanks again, Kerry. I enjoyed this tremendously. Absolutely. This has been the Business in Paradise podcast, and our special guest, Peter Weiss, is the founder of Peter Weiss Publishing. We've been talking about things today that are way more important than money, legacy, values, and the full-out benefit of having a great and wonderful family that knows your story. I'm Kerry Stamp, and you're listening to Business in Paradise. Thank you for listening to the Business in Paradise Palm Beach podcast with Carrie Stamp, founder of Carrie Stamp and Company, Principal Wealth Advisors. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of the Commonwealth Financial Network. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Carrie Stamp and Company is located at 110 Bridge Road, Dequesta, Florida, 33469. Securities and advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network member FINRA SIPC, a registered investment advisor.